Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to UX Indonesia Meetup. I'm Yunisari, CEO and co-founder of UX Indonesia. I'll be your facilitator today for the Meetup. So today we are privileged to have Professor Thomas Reeves, Professor Emeritus of Learning Design and Technology from the University of Georgia, United States. Professor Reeves is going to talk about how design research can be used in education to win the race between human learning and machine learning. Thank you for joining us today, and the time is now yours, Tom. Wonderful, thank you. Well, it's really good to be here. Uh, it's early morning here, and I know it's in the evening there. And, and uh, of course, this is uh, the wonders of technology that we can communicate this way, and uh, really looking forward to uh, presenting uh, to this group. I've never been to Indonesia. Uh, closest I've been, I guess, is to uh, Kuching uh, on the island of Borneo, but um, I have made several trips to Singapore and to Malaysia, but unfortunately never made it to uh, Indonesia and hope to in the future. Uh, I've worked a lot in Australia and uh, I spent uh, about five months one time back in 1993 in Perth where Eunice is. So. I love that part of the world. So the title of my presentation today is Design Research, Winning the Race Between Human Learning and Machine Learning. And um, I'm gonna begin by speaking about the rapidly evolving race between human learning and machine learning, and end by hopefully convincing you that this race, uh, if we're going to win this race, we need to change how we do educational research. Now, I know that many of you have advanced degrees and, and uh, you're bona fide experts in your field and you may scoff at the idea of being replaced by machine learning. However, machine learning computer algorithms are programmed to analyze large data sets and make inferences about new data. They are automating jobs at an ever increasing pace. Will they automate the job of uh, the UX UI uh, specialists? Well, we'll talk about that uh, going forward. Uh, perhaps at the end of the presentation, you'll feel confident I'm not going to be replaced by a computer or a robot, uh, but then maybe you might doubt that. We'll see. Um, so one of these uh, young ladies is a robot and the other isn't. It's pretty obvious which one is which. Uh, but would you be able to tell if the wires weren't exposed on the uh, one on the left? Uh, these and other robots, robotic humans, they call them, are the creations of Professor Hiroshi Ishiguro and his research team at Osaka University's Intelligent Robotics Laboratory. Professor Ishiguro seeks to develop robots with artificial intelligence that are truly lifelike. Here you see him with uh, his own clone. Uh, this is Erica, uh, Professor Ishiguro's latest creation. Soon he and his team hope that advanced humanoids like Erica will be able to feel and express six core emotions. Imagine that, having these uh, robotic humans being able to express happiness, sadness, being afraid, being surprised, being angry. 
and being disgusted. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Now, as not too surprising, uh, his work and the work of others working in this area has received a lot of praise, <clears throat> both in the scientific community and in the business community. Now, I'm 72 years old. <clears throat> Excuse me, I was born in 1947. And I remember when I was growing up in the 1950s, there were uh, there was a lot of speculation about robots. And some of it was very positive. And so there were popular uh, uh, magazines like Popular Electronics that pictured uh, robots putting up your Christmas tree, which is a, a task that uh, I have always detested and I would have loved to have a robot to help out with that. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there were a lot of frightening portrayals of robots. And so in science fiction magazines and movies and so forth, they portrayed a future where robots might take over the world. Time magazine is always a good barometer of where things are going with particular uh, technologies. Uh, way back in 1950, I was only three years old, Time magazine had a cover about um, a new computer, the Mark III computer built by Harvard University for the US Navy. The article speculated on whether computers would ever be able to compete with humans intellectually. The article concluded that machines with superhuman brains are still a little frightening. The men who designed them try to deny that they are creating their own intellectual competitors. Well, it was pretty, I mean, we're, we're talking 70 years ago, people were already thinking about the possibilities of these technologies thinking on their own. Jump ahead until uh, uh, the year uh, 1980, and you see that um, they were, they portrayed robots again on their cover, and it was um, uh, the robotic the robot revolution. And they were mainly talking about the types of robots that we find on assembly lines. Uh, so they they said that uh, for good or ill, um, these um, systems, these robots, are already transforming the way the world works. The new robots do not really look like Frankenstein's monster or RT, R2-D2 in Star Wars, but rather like a row of giant birds. And so any type of manufacturing today will have some type of automated uh, robotic uh, work going on. Um, and then jumping ahead again, Time Magazine uh, put uh, this uh, theme on its cover in... Uh, the year 2015, and there they were talking about the singularity. And they predicted that by 2045, which isn't that long from now, I won't be around, but many of you will, uh, this is the time when, the moment when computers will become intelligent, and not just intelligent, but more intelligent than humans. When that happens, humanity, our bodies, our minds, our civilization, will be completely and irreversibly transformed. Singularitarians, as people who uh, believe in this uh, development, think this will happen as early as 2045. Now, it's interesting because some people portray this as a horrible thing, that 
you know, just unimaginable and will destroy humanity. And others portray it as a positive thing and think it will lead to some form of immortality. I don't really have an opinion one way or another because I won't be around. But it is amazing how quickly we have uh, gone. You see here uh, on the left, this little uh, robot was developed in 1970. So that was 50 years ago at Stanford University. It was called Shaky uh, because it rocked side to side to side when it moved. Shaky was the first general purpose mobile robot to be able to reason about its own actions. Uh, while previous robots would have to be instructed on each individual step of completing a larger task, Shaky could analyze commands and break them down into basic chunks by itself. So uh, you jump ahead quite a few years and we see Nadine. Uh, Nadine is a robotic receptionist developed at Nanyang Technical Technological University in Singapore. Nadine recognizes people she has met before, remembers what they have said in the past, and according to her developers, can even express happiness or sadness. So if you went in to meet uh, someone at uh, NTU, you might be uh, greeted by Nadine and she would say, uh, Eunice, it's so good to see you. How are things in Perth? And, and uh, she would actually uh, remember your previous interactions. <clears throat> Robots are getting so lifelike that you may not even know if you are sitting next to one. Now, I know most of you are probably all by yourselves. Uh, and certainly with this uh, pandemic quarantine, we're not around a lot of people. But uh, if you are with anyone else, you might just uh, lean a little closer to them and see if you can hear any soft whirling sounds. And maybe, maybe the other person you're with is a computer. Who knows? A robot. Now, uh, other developments, uh, actually, uh, Sony uh, developed a robot dog named Aibo uh, 20 years ago, uh, more than 20 years ago, and uh, they've advanced it quite a bit. The, the latest model of their little robotic dog cost $1,700 plus a $26 a month maintenance fee. And the maintenance fee is so that all the dogs, the robotic dogs that are out there are learning things. And so each week they download new learning to your dog that other dogs have accomplished. IABO features uh, deep learning technology, fish eye cameras, and a series of embedded sensors that enable this robotic dog to detect and analyze sounds and images so that it can learn and respond to its environment and interact with its owner so that it appears less robotic. And so you see these advertisements for this dog uh, in Japan, and they show the humans interacting with the dog, and uh, the dog actively seeks out its owners, detects words of praise, smiles, head and back scratches, petting, and more. And uh, Interestingly, Sony has also announced that they have linked up the dog with a security system uh, company in Japan so that the dog actually becomes a functioning watchdog. Some really interesting developments. Um, and you probably heard about this. This is going on right now in Singapore. They're testing a uh, robotic dog 
that uh, enforces social distancing or physical distancing, I think is a better term, during the pandemic in a park there in, in Singapore. Now that doesn't look nearly as friendly as Aibo. Um, so please, if you come to visit me, don't tell our dogs, we have two West Highland Terriers, Westies, named Button and Zipper. Uh, don't tell them about these robotic dogs because they worry enough as it is. They fear that we might get a cat. So they certainly don't want to be replaced by robotic dogs. Uh, my wife, Tricia, is a retired professor of social work, also from the University of Georgia. And I'm a little worried sometimes that uh, I know she would never, never get a robotic dog because she loves our, our real dogs too much, but she might consider replacing me with a robot. You just never know. So now let's switch to the topic of learning. Uh, actually, this is a, 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 you see a picture of me in the middle there in the year 1966. Uh, and I am placing a rat in a three-stage rocket. And this was at my senior year of high school and it was an experiment on learning. I started doing research on learning in 1966 when I was just a teenager. And we had an experimental and a control rat and we blasted the experimental rat off. And oh, beforehand we had trained both rats to run a maze. So they knew how to run this maze to find a piece of cheese. And then the uh, rat came back down to earth and we put uh, both rats uh, in the maze and what do you think we found? We found no significant differences. <laughs> so, so much of educational research has continued to find no significant differences. So uh, actually about uh, 10 years uh, before um, I um, did the research with the rats, um, the um, our, the uh, artificial intelligence research got underway after a small group of computer scientists and other researchers gathered at Dartmouth College in 1956. Early pioneers like John McCarthy pictured here, he coined the term artificial intelligence. They were primarily concerned and focused on building machines that mirrored or simulated human intelligence. For example, they wanted to build a computer program that could beat grandmasters in chess. Initially, they had very little success with this, and it was primarily because of the limits of the technology of the time and the programming algorithms at the time. Jump ahead, and now we're in a time with uh, deep learning uh, systems and uh, the um, uh, relying on vast increases in computing power and advances in programming have allowed deep learning by machines so that uh, today's AI researchers and developers, and I, su I suspect some of you are working in this area, uh, they are building systems that can teach themselves to perform numerous tasks that were previously reserved for humans. Today, the capacity of deep learning machines to see and understand, to listen and speak, read and write, and integrate information and make judgments is developing at an amazing pace. 
While we've grown accustomed to thinking that robotics would take over our simplistic manufacturing tasks, most of us have not begun to grapple with what these machine learning advances mean for the professions. Concerns about machine intelligence and robotics uh, reducing the need for human learning, excuse me, for human workers is spreading around the world. Uh, a headline in the USA Today uh, last year said automation will kill 73 million uh, US jobs by 2030. That's only 10 years from now. Now, of course, <laughs> The pandemic has killed uh, close, you know, getting up to that number of jobs. Uh, it's really a, a terrible situation we have around the world with this. Um, but uh, these predictions uh, were before the pandemic. Unemployment in the USA has now topped 15% and will surely get worse. But uh, there have been a lot of predictions coming out of the UK and uh, European Union and uh, USA about machine learning and robots taking over jobs, but what kinds of jobs? Uh, in, in their book, The Future of the Professions, How Technology Will Transform the Work of Human Experts, father and son authors, Richard and Daniel Suskin, you see them pictured here, uh, are uh, describe how emerging deep learning systems are increasingly taking over the tasks reserved for physicians, accountants, architects, lawyers, journalists, and teachers. In fact, yesterday I found an article that uh, was about uh, a law firm that did an analysis and they showed that if they uh, hired 10 new young lawyers it would cost them about a million dollars uh but they the work that they would be able to do could be done by some of these uh, uh machine learning systems it would only cost them about two hundred thousand. so the economics were let's hire the let's buy the technology now the uh the suskins the authors of this book they're not computer science scientists the father is one of the most distinguished barristers in the United Kingdom, and the son is an economics lecturer at Oxford. But they predict the dismantling of the professions as we know them. Um, another book uh, I read in, in preparation for this was uh, The Rise of the Robots, Technology and the Threat of a Jobless Future by computer scientist Martin Ford. And uh, he considers the field of pharmacy where increasingly the routine tasks of pharmacists are being taken over by automated systems. He describes the pharmacy at the University of California Medical Center in San Francisco that prepares 10,000 individual doses of medication every day without a human pharmacist touching a pill or a medicine bottle. So uh, the way this works, uh, let's suppose you're in the hospital and your physician orders a certain type of medicine for you, uh, an automated system would handle virtually everything, including storing, dispensing, packaging, and delivering the medications directly to your bedside with barcodes so that nurses could track the matching of medications with patients 
greatly reducing the possibility of human error. This uh, picture shows a robotic uh, component of such a system. Um, and uh, curiously, there's a uh, sign on the front of this pharmaceutical robot. It says, please do not enter the elevator with the robot. Uh, I had a similar experience uh, earlier this year. I was speaking at the University of Houston and uh, my uh, Dr. Sarah McNeil, who had invited me there and I were walking across the campus and we ran into several times robots uh, that were delivering food to faculty and students. Um, and they also had signs on them, you know, do not come near the, the robot. They weren't nearly as big as the machine shown here. Now, uh, some studies suggest that education healthcare and social work are the least likely jobs to be automated. But people are doing experiments in this area. Uh, over at Georgia Tech University, which is in Atlanta, about 60 miles from here, a professor, uh, As Ashak Gol, I'm not sure, I'm not pronouncing his name correctly, but um, he has developed a, um, <clears throat> working with his, uh, teaching assistants has developed a machine learning teaching assistant called Jill Watson, a question and answering software program. Reportedly, at least half the students in his course, and he actually teaches a course in artificial intelligence, have not detected differences between the feedback they get from the live teaching assistants and the feedback they get from the machine intelligent TA. And I read recently where he has added more machine learning TAs and decreased the number of human TAs in this course. Uh, data from the Chapman Survey of American Fears, a national random survey that shows that 37% of people report being more afraid of a robust future where their job is eliminated than they are romantic rejection, public speaking, or police brutality. Now, that was done before the pandemic. That probably would be a little different now. So is there hope for humans in this uh, AI, machine learning, robotic dominated future? Another uh, book I really recommend to you was written by Eric Benofson and Andrew McAfee, two professors from MIT. Their book's called The Second Machine Age work, progress, and prosperity in a time of brilliant technologies, they provide a more optimistic answer. They predict that there are three educational outcomes that robots and deep learning machines will not be able to accomplish in the foreseeable future. Specifically, ideation, broad frame pattern recognition, and complex communication. So ideation concerns the creation of new ideas, often described as thinking outside the box. And this is your sweet spot. This is, you know, the essence of, of what you do. You are ideators, if you will. You're very creative people in your field. Then uh, broad, frame, broad frame pattern recognition involves using input from multiple senses and examining the whole picture including social, 
political, economic, cultural, and technical factors to find a solution to an ill-structured problem. Uh, just this morning, I, when I was uh, showering, I was listening to the national public radio and they were talking about uh, a wicked problem. A wicked problem, as you know, is a, an exceedingly complex and difficult problem. And the problem is, uh, how do you uh, allow people to emerge from uh, the, the um, shutdown from the pandemic? And different states have been experimenting with different uh, types of releases. Today, Connecticut became the last of the 50 states to begin to allow people to do things like go to restaurants or uh, get a haircut, things like that. And But each state has really not solved that problem too well. Uh, and uh, there's a concern that as they allow people to do more and more normal things, uh, there's going to be another upswing in the rate of infections. And finally, the third skill is complex communication. This requires the integration of verbal and nonverbal communication in nuance with the empathy to make convincing arguments and persuade others. So these authors at MIT argue that ideation, broad frame pattern recognition, and complex communication are the things that will set us apart from these advances, te advancing technologies. My question is though, is are we preparing our high school and university students for these types of skills? Are we preparing them to compete with deep learning and robots? And what does educational research tell us we should be doing to better prepare our learners? Now, I don't know if you read any educational research journals, there's a, over a hundred journals devoted just to educational technology research, my field. And uh, I actually used to be the editor of one of these. And these journals come out every quarter, sometimes six times a year, and they're full of articles uh, about research, about the integration of technology into teaching and learning. But uh, all too often, the findings are no significant differences. Uh, and uh, I, I see this again and again. Right now, a lot of people are running studies where they are comparing online classes with face-to-face -face classes. And most of the research, again, shows no significant differences. And we've known this for a long time, that, uh, you know, you, if you don't change the pedagogy, if you don't change the instructional design, changing the medium from face-to-face -to, -face to online really is not gonna make a difference. If, the same, if they're doing the same task, if they're reading textbooks, if they're listening to lectures, whether they're on a computer or in a classroom, if they're uh, writing term papers, if they're taking exams, it's the same design, it's the same pedagogy. Why would you expect them to be any major differences? You have to change the pedagogy to take advantage of the affordances of the online technology. Also, these journals are too full of research on things rather than problems. So whenever the latest thing comes out, whether it's you know 3D printers or wearable technology, uh, virtual assistants, etc., you can predict that there's soon going to be studies that will say you know we're going to compare uh, 
middle school science students who have 3D printers with students who don't have 3D printers and see who learns more. And again, all too often the findings are no significant differences. What we really need is research on problems. What are the problems that we face in our schools and universities and our training centers today? Uh, things like ineffective teaching, uh, inadequate higher order learning, poor learner motivation, failure to engage learners, little preparation for real world performance, lack of intellectual curiosity, underdeveloped creativity, weak communication skills, and insufficient time on task. These are the problems that our research should focus on, not the latest thing that we throw over the walls of classrooms and expect things to change. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Educause Review is an online journal about uh, instructional technology and information technology in higher education. And they published a study five years ago uh, there was actually a doctoral dissertation. It's called Paper or Tablet, Reading, Recall, and Comprehension. And you can go out and take a look at that study. So the study was done uh, at the U.S. Coast Guard Leadership Development Center. And it was done in the context of a senior enlisted leadership course. And this particular development center had bought tablet devices for all of the uh, the students. Now, the students in this case were non-commissioned officers. So they were people that were uh, uh, non-commissioned officers in the U.S. Coast Guard. And they gave them these tablet devices for their course readings instead of paper. And the uh, doctoral student who was interested, who did this study, she was interested in whether they learned as well from reading on a tablet versus reading on paper. So this is her study. Uh, and this was a doctoral dissertation done at a, a first-class university. Uh, because it was a military context, she could do uh, uh, experimental studies. So she had 231 of these non-commissioned officers who were randomly assigned to either read a document on a digital tablet or a paper, piece of paper. It was an 800-word leadership article. The treatment time was less than 10 minutes. So it only took about 10 minutes to read this article. To, she did pre and post testing with a, 10 multiple choice items to measure recall and two short essay questions to measure comprehension. And what do you think she found? Well, just like my study in 1966 with the rats, she found no significant differences. And think about it, why would there be a difference? It's, it's, I don't know why they would have thought there would be a difference. I mean, they're just reading an article. It doesn't really, if it reads on a, uh, words on a paper or words on a screen, it really doesn't matter. Um, so is there a better way to do research? Well, I, I've uh, last year published the second edition of a book called Conducting Educational Design Research with Susan McKinney from the University of Twente in the Netherlands. And Susan and I have worked uh, together on many things for about 20 years. And the book is called Conducting Educational Design Research. It's currently being translated into Japanese. Uh, I hope that other languages will also be coming forward. Um, so in the book, we introduce a model. And like all models, it's, it's um, 
it's uh, not perfect by any means, but basically the way educational design research progresses is through stages. You start with a stage of analysis and exploration. Uh, then you move gradually into a stage of design and construction of an intervention that will uh, address the problem that you identified during the analysis and exploration phase. And then once you have a prototype intervention, then you go into an evaluation and reflection phase. And there are two major outcomes from educational design research. First, you hopefully have a mature intervention, one that addresses and solves the pedagogical problem that this study started with. And second, uh, you have uh, enhanced theoretical understanding. And that's what really distinguishes this from what's called action research. You may be familiar with action research. Action research is very similar, but it only focuses on a solution to a problem. It doesn't try to also uh, enhance theoretical understanding. So um, in educational design research, you start off by defining an important pedagogical problem, working hand in hand with practitioners, teachers or uh, UX uh, uh, trainers and so forth. They're the people that own the problem. So you define an important pedagogical problem. You create a prototype learning solution informed by theory and practice. You emphasize content and pedagogy rather than technology alone. You give special attention to supporting human interactions you test, uh, refine, and retest uh, the solution until the problem is alleviated. And at the same time, you're seeking to refine theory. The theory is usually uh, represented in design principles, design principles that are reusable that you and others can share and, and use. So how would I do the, the study with the tablets differently if I was doing educational design, design research? Well, first thing I'd want to know, what's the problem? Why did they buy these tablets in the first place? Uh, so, you know, we would go through a phase of working with the instructors there to do analysis and exploration, literature review, uh, interviews, studying state of the art, and really try to understand what's the problem? What, why are they thinking that they need to have these tablet devices? And then gradually, uh, we would then move into, uh, after we identified the problem, uh, we would build a prototype solution during the design and construction phase. Now, you know, right now they're just using the tablets for readings. Uh, so maybe an article on alien migrant interdiction, but perhaps instead they could use the affordances of the uh, device to build interactive simulations. Uh, now, this is a very simple idea here, but one of the most difficult things that the Coast Guard deals with, and this is in all countries, is when migrants are trying to escape from tyranny, they often use overloaded boats. So how do you safely load and underload, uh, uh, offload rather, uh, people from these uh, terrible situations so that you can rescue them? you can see that the affordances of the device then could be more, much more useful if they had some uh, sophisticated simulations. And then we would test and refine those uh, prototypes 
during the evaluation and reflection phase. And uh, one of the problems with our model is the evaluation and reflection phase is shown there just as one thing, but it's often, it's usually iterative. Three or more iterations of evaluation and reflection of your prototype until you eventually, hopefully, arrive at a mature intervention and enhanced theoretical understanding. So why are people doing research like this? Why, uh, why are they still doing experimental studies? I saw a study published just uh, uh, a few days ago that was comparing, uh, it was law classes, comparing law classes face-to-face -face with law classes online. And I suspect what they're going to find, if they don't dramatically change the design and the pedagogy, they're going to find no significant differences. Part of it is because it's, we're driven not so much by trying to solve problems, but by publish or perish. So it's easier to do these experimental studies and get them published. And your advancement in your career is advanced, is uh, supported more by the number of articles that you have than the quality of your research. And that's why I advocate for educational design research, because it has impact on real world problems. That's what it's all about. And we have enormous problems. Again, going back to Time Magazine, uh, we need socially responsible research that's focused on problems that matter. Uh, the fact that, uh, you know, people in the United States really are not scientifically literate. Uh, and so we're flunking science, uh, high school dropout, uh, the way we treat teachers in America. Here's a cover from a couple of years ago. I have a master's degree, 16 years of experience, work two extra jobs and donate blood plasma to pay my bills. I'm a teacher in America. And that's uh, a problem that continues. We can also look, uh, I try to get my students when they're uh, doing a, uh, a PhD to situate their dissertation in some sort of important sustainable development goal, whether it's goal number four, quality education for everyone around the world, or good health and well-being, uh, and uh, so forth. So I try to get them to situate their dissertation in some sort of important sustainable development goal. So uh, to conclude, we have to ask, are we preparing our students for a future where they may compete with our creations uh, for their very survival? Are we preparing our students for being able to engage in ideation, in broad frame pattern recognition, in uh, communication? Um, the, the good thing is these three skills are a very important part of UX design. I mean, this is the essence of what you do. Uh, so, you know, I really don't think that you have much to worry about. I don't think uh, your field is going to be eliminated by advances in this technology. It's much more likely that you'll be supported increasingly by these devices, but your expertise in terms of ideation 
in terms of broad frame pattern recognition, in terms of communication with your clients and, and other uh, users and so forth, those are gonna come to the fore and your field has a bright future. So um, is it the dawn of a new age of collaboration between humans and robots and machine learning? Or is it the evening before a long night when we become increasingly irrelevant? The title of my talk today asked, uh, you know, design research winning the race between human learning and machine learning. We each should ask ourselves this question. How is my research and development work going to improve the lives of our children and our grandchildren and future generations, especially their capacity to win this critical race between human learning and machine learning? Now, I realize I've raised a lot of questions and I haven't exactly given many answers, uh, but I implore, implore you to heed the words of the philosopher Voltaire, who wrote, judge a man by his questions rather than by his answers. So judge me by my questions. Uh, perhaps a few years from now, uh, someone will remember this presentation and will be able to say, you know, that uh, Reeves guy was like the boy who cried wolf, or he cried robot. But unlike the proverbial wolf, the robot never came. Perhaps so. But I'll leave you with another quote from Voltaire. He said, everything's fine today. That is our illusion. Everything's fine today. That is our illusion. Thank you very much. I think we have a lot of questions here, like uh, from the audience. Yeah, so uh, there's a, a comment here from John. Uh, there's a case uh, to be put about the sweet spot where pedagogy and technology interact. Placing technology as always first turns technology into a tool, which he doesn't think it is. Like, uh, do you have any comment on that one? Yes. Um, I. Uh... I think we have had a tendency to think of technology primarily as a replacement for something else. Um, so that, you know, oh, of course, the big threat 30 years ago was that technology is going to replace the teacher and uh, or technology is going to replace the textbook. I remember back in the 1920s, actually, Thomas Edison predicted that within 10 years, all textbooks would be gone and that they would be replaced by films. Uh, and of course he invented the film projector, so he had a, an agenda for that. But uh, we've seen that prediction again and again and again. Uh, I think of technology as a cognitive tool, a cognitive tool. It allows us to think better and solve problems better than we do without technology. So uh, I wrote a, a chapter uh, with David Jonathan, uh, the late Professor David Jonathan, back in the 1990s about using technology as a cognitive tool. That chapter's actually been cited uh, almost 1400 times in the literature. Um, and I, uh, I think we don't treat technology enough like a cognitive tool, and we still think of it as something that's going to replace something else. Like 
you know, the tablets are uh, is going to replace paper and, and so forth. Okay, great. Thank you. Do you think in the future, like a machine uh, would be able to conduct a design-based research uh, without human intervention? Yeah, that's, <laughs> well, uh, maybe so, maybe so. You know, it's interesting, uh, here at the University of Georgia, we have one of the world's best journalism schools. Uh, but the editor of Wired magazine uh, says that within the next few years, 95% of all journalism will be written by machine algorithms. They've developed uh, some software at uh, uh, some of MIT and other universities um, called Quill. And Quill can take information from the internet about, let's say the stock market has gone down dramatically. This system will gather all the information and within 10 minutes, churn out a story and have that up on the web. Whereas of course, humans trying to deal with that same uh, issue would take much more time. And so he's predicting that 95% of journalism will be replaced by um, these systems. Now, so if you have a, a child or grandchild who says they want to be a journalist, maybe you need to steer them toward being a, a UX designer rather than becoming a journalist. Uh, so do you think uh, we should start to rethink about the job that uh, we we should choose like in the future? Well, yeah, I definitely do. Uh, I think, um, you know, most of these systems within say the next 10 to 20 years will be primarily focused on replacing rather routine jobs uh, routine tasks um, and uh, the jobs that they eliminate will not be at the higher ends of the professions. But even at the higher ends of the professions, there are certain jobs that are being replaced. For example, radiology. I have a couple of friends who are radiologists and some studies recently found that machine learning uh, radiology machines can do a better job of looking at the x-rays and, and scans and CT scans and MRIs than human radiologists. And they've actually done studies that show these systems are able to spot emerging diseases like cancer and so forth earlier than the human radiologist. So that's, you know, if I uh, was going into medicine today, I would uh, think twice about going into radiology. Um, actually, uh, coincidentally, I'm, uh, involved in helping to teach a course at Baylor Medical School right now. The course started yesterday. It's an online course for brand new medical students. And the course is about wicked problems in medical education. And we are teaching these first year medical students how to do educational design research in the context of medical education. This is the very first course they're taking. Uh, and in their major task in the course is working with a small team, they will present at the end of the course a wicked problem in medical education and then how they would address that through educational design research. Um, so yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of, you have to be very careful about what career you pick these days. But again, I think your field is uh, pretty safe for the time being.
yeah that is the problem because we don't know what happened like uh, in the future like a future is you know like maybe uh, in six months or in one year things might be different and like now for example if you are like a high school student and uh, you want to go to uni and uh, you have to choose now and you don't know like what what is going to happen in two years on in four uh, in four years so that is uh, also um, a dilemma i think yes and and uh it is a dilemma and also um you know talk about wicked problems universities are facing the question of should they reopen for business as usual uh yesterday cambridge university in the uk announced that they were going to stay online for the next year they're not going to have face-to-face -face classes for an entire year uh, and uh, some other universities are rushing toward reopening uh, right here in my own state i suspect they're going to try to reopen the universities in august but we'll see there is a question related to this from gregory santos in brazil so he's um uh, saying uh, here's a comment regarding ideation and complex communication machine's ability do you think they can, they could uh, compete with us like us like human personally he thinks he's not sure we should uh, we should research deeper on these soft skills of human in the context of human pedagogy not machine pedagogy what do you think about that Oh, that's great. I didn't realize folks were here from Brazil. That's wonderful. I've visited Brazil a couple of times and had some wonderful experiences there. Um, yes, I think, uh, you know, none of, no one knows for sure uh, what these systems will be able to do. And that's one of the things that's a little scary because, <clears throat> because they're teaching themselves. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, the reason that they uh, are able to you know, beat humans at very complex games like chess and Go uh, is because before they match up with the humans, they literally play millions and millions of games. Uh, and they learn by playing those games. And then, uh, you know, at one point people said, oh, uh, yeah, these computers, Big Blue, they can beat people at chess, but they'll never be able to win the game of Go because of its complexity. And yet they did. Um, and uh, last year, I think it was in Singapore, <clears throat> there was a, a debate between a machine learning system and a human expert in a particular field. I think it was to do with early childhood education. And people voted on who did better in the debate. And the people said the, the, the human won the debate. But surprisingly, a huge percentage of people said they actually learned more from the answers provided by the machine learning system than they did from the answers provided by the debater. Um, so again, uh, nothing is safe in this uh, brave new world. Well, nothing is safe. That is That sounds really scary. <laughs> Shamsul from uh, Shamsul Arya Arivin from Malaysia. He has a question. How do you predict this robot machine learning can impact the third world countries? Yes, um, I have um, <clears throat> devoted a lot of my career to working in emerging economies. Um, 
my most recent uh, co-edited book is uh, titled MOOCs and Open Education in the Global South. Um, I spent a year in the 70s teaching in Peru and uh, <clears throat> I've done work in another of uh, a number of other uh, countries in the Global South. Um, I've done volunteer work in India and so forth. I actually uh, worked with a group of folks in Pune, India, who train uh, 70,000 teachers uh, and uh, taught them about how to do educational design research. So, but again, I'm not in an emerging economy. So what, what do I know? Uh, why should I have uh, any expertise in this area? Uh, but I, I do worry uh, about it, uh, particularly as these uh, systems um, can develop more and more uh, eye-hand coordination. So the, uh, for example, the manufacturing of clothing, right now, humans are essential to doing things like sewing on buttons and making lapels and, and other types of things. It's really uh, fine, but you know, how long is it gonna be before uh, these systems can replicate that type of work as well? So I wish I had a clear answer. I don't really feel qualified for that. Uh, interestingly, you know, people have been saying for a few years that MOOCs are dead, massive open online courses, MOOCs are dead. Well, they're not dead in the emerging economies. Um, in fact, they're doing quite well. And that's because they're focused on knowledge and skills and attitudes and habits that people really need. So if you develop a MOOC, for example, on how to manage better uh, irrigation canals or on how to maintain your fishing nets and things like that, these MOOCs, whereas in the uh, North America and Europe, MOOCs often have uh, less than 10% completion rate. It, these focus MOOCs in emerging economies in the global south often have a 75% completion rate because they are focused on the knowledge and skills that people really need in a timely manner. I guess I can also like a comment a bit on this area as well, because a lot of my research is in Indonesia and also in some part of Southeast Asia, like uh, talking about the online learning, it is very, very different. And the way how I approach online learning here in Australia is very different. Like uh, when you teach online learning in Indonesia, even though you said that it's like uh, online learning, you cannot just leave it as online completely so it is really a unique experience and i guess like a lot of us still uh, maybe have a different opinion on that one but the mooc <laughs> yes it is definitely not working yet like uh, because a lot of people are more on uh, like uh, being a lurker than uh than becoming uh, actively engaged in the conversation so I have a, a question here from the teachers, uh, Ibu Ida. So Ida is a high school teacher in Indonesia. And uh, he, uh, she, she is a very interested like uh, to teach uh, robotic because she knows that the robotic is a very important in the future. But then um, uh, her students is less interested in learning robotic. Um, based on your experience in developing 
country or in other places uh, globally, like uh, how do you motivate students to learn about technology, especially at high school level? Yes, I, I wish my uh, colleague, Professor Ike Che, was here because he does research in that exact area. He has a very large uh, robotics education laboratory at the University of Georgia, and they're mainly working in middle schools and high schools. The, the secret, I think, to getting uh, kids involved in this type of education is to have it be based on experiential learning, on problem-based learning, and uh, hands-on activities with uh, these technologies. I saw that, uh, oh gosh, it's at least 10 years ago in Singapore, where uh, schools uh, there were having kids compete in robotic uh, uh, competitions where they were building these robots to do different tasks and competing on that. I, one time I was at the University of Calgary and they had the worldwide robotics competition going on there for kids uh, from all over the world. In fact, they had a team there from Australia um, of uh, 20 young people and their parents and teachers came and and they did quite well. Uh, anyway, um, I, I think it's all about having authentic tasks that they're involved in. So how would you design robots to do X task? Uh, you know, deliver pizza to people that are staying home from pandemics uh, or uh, water your plants while you're away, things like that. Uh, and. Uh, have them involved in experiential learning, problem-based learning, authentic task-based learning. Uh, there's a lot of good literature out there and I, I encourage you to look at some of the uh, articles by uh, Ike Che, C-H-O-I, Ixon is his first name. Uh, and I, I'll uh, send some links to that. He's my colleague at the University of Georgia who's doing a lot of good work in this area. I, I was a... Uh, a seventh grade teacher back in the early 70s. And um, I taught social studies, but even then I had students involved in uh, authentic learning. So rather than reading a history textbook and writing a term paper and so forth, we would actually uh, do uh, try to find out about our local history and interview older people about what they'd experienced and so forth. So the kids were learning history by being historians. And that's really the secret. And putting them in situations where they, if you want them to think like historians, they have to write history. And uh, that applies in many, many fields. Great. Uh, so this question is actually related to the comment that you had before, like a couple of times you mentioned about the user experience is a really promising job and uh, something like that in the future. Uh, so this person dying at Gile, uh, he's, um, he's asking, so in the future, what's the role of user experience designer if the robot has been using artificial intelligence? What abilities of a user experience designer or researcher must upgrade to face the future? Because maybe user experience designer or researcher will be disappeared because all of the things will be replaced by artificial intelligence in the future. Well, I, uh, that, you know, again, I'm not in your field, so I, I'm hesitant to make predictions, but 
I find hope in the idea that because your field is in essence all about create creativity, all about the analysis of complex user interface problems, all about communicating with clients and with users and so forth, uh, that uh, it's a field that won't be eliminated by these systems. The systems will get more sophisticated and they'll be able to assist, but they're not going to, that human spark of creativity is still going to be needed, I think, for the foreseeable future. Uh, I used to do uh, usability testing. I taught a course for many years at the University of Georgia on uh, e-learning evaluation. And every uh, semester, we would travel to Atlanta to visit one of the professional usability testing laboratories there. And it was always the highlight of the semester to, to see the, the uh, incredible work that people were doing in those laboratories. And we ended up uh, buying a, a portable usability lab and, and many of my students use that in their research studies and so forth. So I think I think of your field as being a very creative one, uh, a, a very oriented toward solving wicked problems and in uh, a much needed field. I mean, we have uh, even today um, uh, so many problems with computer interfaces, user interfaces, um, device interfaces, and so forth, that there's a growing need, if anything. Another field that's related to yours is instructional design. And right now, instructional designers are in great demand as schools and universities and training centers are moving from face-to-face -to, -face to blended and online. And so that's a very hot field as well. But it also involves a lot of creativity, a lot of problem solving, and a lot of communication. So those three key skills. How do you think uh, design-based research, like uh, related to uh, problem-based learning, uh, is it like, a, can we say that's quite similar? Or, uh, and what about the design thinking, like um, innovation thinking? Do you think they, how, how they relate to each other? Yes, thank you. Um, so I think about problem-based learning as being a, a, a pedagogical design that uh, you could introduce into your learning environment. Um, and uh, it's closely related to project-based learning or authentic task-based learning and, and so forth. So there are a lot of types of pedagogies. Um, design-based research or educational design research, sometimes it's called development research, in your field, it's called simply design research. By the way, one of the best books in this area was written by Brenda Laurel, uh, who used to work at Apple. Uh, it's simply called Design Research, and it's an edited book, but it has a lot of really good ideas in it. I recommend that to you. Um, but uh, I, uh, in fact, just this week, uh, an article came out that I wrote with uh, a couple of people from the World Health Organization, one of them in Indonesia and uh, one in uh, Geneva, Switzerland. And this uh, article is all about replacing an, a traditional face-to-face -face course that trained people to do inspections of randomized controlled trials in the vaccine area and pharmaceutical products area. 
So anytime you have a new vaccine, you have to test it and refine it through randomized controlled trials. Those trials have to be done with uh, good uh, clinical practices and people have to go and inspect those. So the course was face-to-face -face, was week long and uh, we replaced it with an online course and I'll send you a link to the article, but uh, I would argue that our online course is more authentic and more engaged on problem solving than the face-to-face -face course. And I don't have time to go into all the details on that, but I encourage you to take a look at that. And we've done that with a number of other courses as well for the World Health Organization. Um, <clears throat> so I think I maybe rambled there, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I apologize. Right. So Kafe from uh, Kafe from Iran, he has a question, and he uh, he needs your comment on uh, on this statement. Pedagogy used to claim deep learning for human, but today AI is stacked with the deep learning. Do you have any comment on that one? Okay, yes. Uh, I, I understand the question now, the, the statement. Um, yeah, so deep learning on the part of humans is still very, very important. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, there's this whole advancements going on with deep learning with technology that's getting more and more sophisticated and uh, you know in some cases um, people who are involved in that research say well we don't really know what these systems are learning because they're beginning to write their own code so it's, it's really uh, a little bit worrisome but meanwhile in the human area we have to continue to do deep learning so for example engineering education. I've worked in that area as well. And in engineering education, you want people to think like designers, you want design thinking, you want them to be creative, you want them to be intellectually curious. Uh, there, you could list a, a dozen types of soft skills that engineers need to have. And so uh, some work I did at the Air Force Academy, which is basically a, an engineering school a number of years ago with one of my uh, two of my PhD students, actually. Um, <clears throat> so they had a problem. They had uh, the cadets, the students there, taking five introductory courses to engineering. They were taking introduction to electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, aerospace engineering, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end of those five courses, they weren't thinking like engineers. They really didn't think like designers. They weren't intellectually curious. They might have gotten A grades in all those courses, uh, they memorized a lot of stuff and regurgitated that on tests, but they really didn't think like designers and, and engineers and so forth. So then we built a new course. In the new course, which came before the uh, discipline introduction courses, um, was just called Introduction to Engineering. And in the course, students had three tasks. They had to get to Mars. They had to build a research site on Mars, and they had to develop a renewable power source on Mars. So they worked the whole semester on those three problems. How do you get to Mars? How do you build a, a livable site on Mars? And how do you develop power source on Mars? Now, no one knows the answers to these questions. These are wicked problems. But because they were involved in collaboration 
and um, problem-based learning and so forth, they, at the end of each third of the semester, they had to present their solution to those problems. And they did real things. They built model rockets, they flew them, they built 3D models of their research site on Mars, what materials were there they could use, what would they have to bring from Earth, all those types of things. Again, there's no one right answer, but we were able to show that we really developed their ability to solve ill-structured problems, ill-framed problems, as opposed to textbooks problems, because they were involved for a whole semester in solving wicked problems. And I've got some studies on that I could share with you as well. But uh, it's, it's really about, uh, we need to continue to develop and, and, and up our game in terms of the outcomes of uh, our education, starting at, at the earliest years through uh, university education, graduate school, and in professional training. So there, uh, there's another question here from uh, Yafet. Yafet is from Pakistan, if I'm, yeah, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, he asked, like, uh, what do you think? Uh, due to COVID-19, we are moving towards virtual teaching. You said it a couple of times. And um, he said that teacher will be replaced by robots. And uh, what do, do you have any say about that? Well, uh, as I mentioned, some of my uh, peers over at Georgia Institute of Technology, Georgia Tech, um, are experimenting with those types of things. And it, it's interesting uh, if we're getting, if those systems are getting so sophisticated that you can't tell the difference between the help you get from a machine learning teaching assistant versus a human teaching learn uh, teaching assistant. It, it can uh, it can be worrisome for sure but again i think of teaching and, and education as a very creative field uh like your field uh a field that demands thinking out of the box um uh, certainly complex communication is very critical to teaching and also being able to uh, uh recognize difficult problems. You have individual learners at all kinds of places and so forth. So uh, I don't see a time when teachers will be replaced. They may be doing different things. They won't be, you know, just lecturing to people. Uh, you know, increasingly medical schools, for example, are using a uh, flipped uh, learning model. Uh, they were finding that uh, very uh, only about 30 to 40 percent of students were coming to lectures in medical schools what they preferred to do was to uh, the lectures were of course recorded they would then get together with their friends and watch the uh, lectures that had been recorded and be able to zoom forward and and, and so forth uh, and then figure out okay what do we what can we get out of this that will help us do better on the test and they would form study groups and so forth so they weren't actually going to the physical lectures. And so now they're saying, well, if they're not going to come to lectures, why don't we just not have face-to-face -face lectures? Let's have video recorded lectures. And then when they come to the make the class activities, more hands-on, more problem solving, uh, that sort of thing. So that's a development that's going on quite a bit. But I, I really think that uh, uh, 
teachers like instructional designers like UX, uh, IX designers uh, are have many of the same skills and expertise and are going to remain critical and important for many years to come. Okay, so this one will be our last question. This re this is related to your uh, last comments about how to make uh, lesson engaging and hands-on. Okay, so because students have various backgrounds, so how can machine learning uh, give um, challenging questions for the students so they can be motivated enough? Yes, I understand now. Yeah, I'm actually uh, an external evaluator for a project at um, the University of Missouri done by Jim Laffey and some of the other professors there. And they built a system called Mission Hydroscience. It's a virtual learning environment for middle school students. And in this virtual learning environment, the, the children uh, uh, travel to uh, other planets and they're studying the water systems uh, of those planets to try to decide whether or not they could be inhabited. And uh, the, it's uh, about two weeks worth of interactions with uh, this system. And uh, what we're finding is that um, kids who normally are the brightest students in a class who, you know, have been very successful in traditional teaching, which is all about teacher talk, test, text, so forth they struggle sometimes in these virtual environments because they can't stand out and shine like they do in the more traditional. And we're finding that some of the children uh, who maybe were reluctant to speak up in the normal classroom and so forth, that they really are able to, and they're, they're collaborating with other students, but they're able to come into their own. And because they're, uh, you know, involved in solving, again, complex problems that have no one right answer, that they're a bit more successful than sometimes than some of the traditionally A students. Um, so uh, I think by building technologies, not that replace the teacher talk, but that actually put students into the situation of solving complex, wicked, real world problems, that that's where the type of learning that we're looking for will be developed. And these systems, of course, we, almost all work today is uh, teamwork. And uh, this is particularly true in, in medicine. Today, you know, doctors, nurses, anesthesiologists, radiologists, all these different professions, they have to work in a team and be coordinated and so forth. One of the most important outcomes is learning how to work in teams. And that's true in many, many fields. And so uh, we should have our students engaged in working collaboratively from the earliest times. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for all uh, excellent answers and really good discussion and questions from the audience as well. Um, yeah, and really thank you for making uh, more time for us today to answer all these questions. It's really, uh, we really appreciate that. And I hope everyone here is like uh, you enjoy um, the meetup. And thank you so much again, Tom, for your time.
and uh, I hope you also enjoy your time as well today. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Nice. Thank you.